The first three lines of the last stanza of What the Thunder Said indicate the old Fisher King in Fortis, relinquishing the shawl of the Fisher King to the new one, Parsifal. The line that opens the stanza is, I sat upon the shore fishing with the arid plain behind me. The arid plain behind me. The desiccation, the aridity, and desolation of the wasteland is now done. Now the land has been revivified and rejuvenated. The blessed rain has come. The next line echoes the prophet Isaiah. Quote, shall I at least set my lands in order? The two preconditions we have set for the coming of the rain to the wasteland are the revelation of the resurrected historical incarnation of the fertility God, Jesus of Nazareth, to his disciples on their journey to Emmaus. Quote, who is the third who walks always beside you? And the recovery of the Sangreal by the monkish Galahand from the perilous chapel. Quote, there is the empty chapel, only the wind's home. The final component to ensure the essential greenness of the land is the enshrinement of the new Fisher King. This particular narrative comes from the great medieval poet Wolfram van Essenbach, version of the legend of Parsifal, the source of Wagner's great opera, as told by Joseph Campbell in his essay, The Mythology of Love, From Myths to Live By. Here, according to Verlaine's verse translation of the opera, the Grail Enchantress tries to seduce Parsifal, fails, becomes humbled and purified, washing his feet with their long black hair and tears, and thus enabling him to enter into the Grail Castle, kill the old Fisher King in Fortis, and become the new Fisher King himself. Every natural impulse in this period of ecclesiastical despotism was branded as corrupt, with the only recognized means of redemption vested in sacraments administered by authorities who were themselves indeed corrupt. People were forced to profess and live by beliefs they did not actually hold. The imposed moral order held precedence over the claims of both truth and love. This devastation in Christendom was symbolized by the young, maimed Fisher King. As the Fisher King is maimed, so is the land. The Fisher King's fate is inextricably bound up with that of the lands. And so in Fraser's Golden Bough, as quoted previously, the king or surrogate king is sacrificed for the fertility of the community and the land. Amfortus, whose name is, quote, infirmity, has not earned the title, the guardianship, of the culmination of mankind's highest spiritual potential, the Holy Grail, the Sancreel. He has inherited it. Basically, he is just waiting for the Grail Knight to come and heal him. He has not proven his role, but still moved in the natural way of youth. Like all young men, he rides out of the Grail Castle 
with the battle cry Amor and encounters a pagan knight. Amphorthus's lance kills the pagan knight, but that knight's lance, inscribed with the name of the Grail, unsexes the young king. This calamity was symbolic of the disassociation within Christendom of spirit from nature, the denial of nature as corrupt. Amphortus again was in need of the Grail Knight, one who was uncorrupted, nobly endowed, skilled in knightly etiquette, with a noble heart, enduring loyalty, and filled with compassion. Such a knight was Parsifal. Parsifal lived with his widowed mother in a forest far, far away from Camelot. One day a troop of Etherian knights came through, and he was enchanted, and he left immediately for Camelot. He became apprenticed to the old master, Gernamonts. He was taught knightly etiquette and the martial arts, and Gernamonts was so enamored by Parsifal, he offered his daughter to him in marriage. But Parsifal declined, saying he had not earned that right to have her as his wife. He let the reins go slack on his charger. It took him to a tower where a young orphan queen lived, who was Parsifal's age. She was besieged by an evil feudal lord who wanted to force to marry her, titled to her estate to unite her unite hers to his own. Parsifal made short work of him, and they fell in love, like the 12th century French troubadours sang of transcendent romantic love. They had no priest to sacramentalize their marriage, so their love and commitment to each other sacramentalized their marriage. The poet Wolfram then addressed himself, was of human nature fulfilled, not overcome or transcended in the achievement of that supreme spiritual goal the grail symbolized in the medieval ages. Having done his secular duties, his knightly deeds and marriage, Parsifal is now ready for his journey in search of the grail castle. The mystical law that governed the search for the San Grail, the grail knight, must not know the task or rules of the quest. He must accomplish everything by following only his natural impulses and spontaneity. After a period of time, Parsifal had a vision of the castle. With resounding applause, the drawbridge was lowered. The main Fisher King was brought in on a litter. Out of compassion, Parsifal asked, What ails you? Immediately the maimed Fisher King was healed, the wasteland turned green, and Parsifal was enshrined as the new Fisher King. In actuality, it didn't happen that way. When the maimed king was brought in, although filled with compassion, Parsifal did not ask the proper question, because Gunnermans had taught him that a knight on a grill quest does not ask questions. So the whole vision quest fell apart. He allowed his concern for a social mask to inhibit the impulse of his nature. What everyone was doing in this period, which was the cause of all that was wrong. He was cursed and derided. He thought it was a diabolical manifestation from God. 
Only after years of austerity and quest did he get a second chance, and that was due to his knightly deeds and his marriage, not to the obdurate search for the Grail Castle. He came upon in his travels a pavilion of a royal wedding. There were many beautiful women and dalliance there who lusted after him, but he rejected all of them with his wife's image engraved on his heart, even though he had not seen her for years. Then he was challenged by Islamic knight on the same grail quest. Parsifal remembered he had a Muslim half-brother, though through the same flesh. So Parsifal's sword was shattered on the helmet of the Islamic knight, but the Islamic knight was bound by knightly etiquette and could not kill a defenseless knight. And then there's this wonderful recognition saying they both realize they are of the same flesh, half-brothers. And it in, entails two invitations from the Grail Castle, one to Parsifal and one to the Islamic knight, which was such a surprise, because at this time were the Crusades, when the Muslims and Christians were at each other's throats. Parsifal then reframes his previous mistake out of, and out of compassion asks the correct question. The young, maimed Fisher King is healed. The wasteland turns to green. Parsifal is enshrined as the new Fisher King. The Islamic knight is given the grail maiden as wife, the only one who is pure enough to hold it. He goes back to the Orient to reign in truth and love, and to quote, that his people should gain the rights. And this tale of the Fisher King is the third component to fulfill the greening of the land. And then it is followed in the text. There are four fragments, each complete unto itself, all with a restorative ending. The first is the nursery rhyme. London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. What happens to a child when he's knocked down the blocks? He begins to build it up. So London Bridge is building up, building up, building up. The next fragment comes from Dante's Purgatorio, where Arnaud Daniel, the Italian provincial poet Dante admired very much, and whose name Eliot dedicated the wasteland to Ezra Pound, Il Miglior Fabro the better craftsman. And Daniel saw Dante perch between the Purgatorio and the Paradiso and exclaimed, Remember me and my suffering, and drove back into the refining fire. The next fragment comes from the later Latin poem, the Pivigenodium Veneris. The quote is, When will I cease to be silent like the swallow? reminding us of Philomel and Procne's transformation. The final fragment comes from Naval's The Disinherited, quote, the Prince of Aquitaine to the Ruined Tower. But the Ruined Tower can always be rebuilt. Though each is complete in itself, together they point to a higher order or gestalt, and that is a gestalt of all Western consciousness. The quote from the text is, These fragments I have shored against my ruins. The ruins we've witnessed before. 
exemplified by Kurtz's from Conrad's Heart of Darkness, The Horror of the Horror, The Sibyls, I Want to Die, and we'll see the dark wisdom of Selenus. The best is yet not to be born. Therefore, it's the terror experience of the void, which is at the very center of Western consciousness itself. Here we have to remember the three functions of the imagination. The first is to metaphorize the human condition. Nietzsche, in his Birth of Tragedy, suggests that a poet is one who creates a drama and gives voices to that drama. In other words, we're all poets. We all metaphorize the human condition. The next function is to reverse the terror experience of the void, as said before, at the very heart of Western consciousness. To create a mythos which allows one to operate in the face of Saturnian nothingness, Saturnian nausea. Then Nietzsche talks about the Olympian mirror in Birth of Tragedy that does the existential trick supplanting that dark wisdom of Selenus, which we've seen before. The best is not to be born at all. And finally, a created self or mask that filters the raw preconceptual flux of the present moment, identifying with the transforming mythos itself, thus adding the necessary transcendent element to the human condition. And therefore, we have to consider the ruins again, whether it is Kurtz's, the Sibyls, or Selenus's. For here we encounter essential chaos, but perhaps essential chaos is itself consummate order. When you scatter dots randomly on a page, you can connect a one or two or three together in a cone, and make a double cone, and a triple column. Therefore, you are imprinting order upon chaos. And this is the third function of the imagination, to imprint order on the chaotic. And dare I say that perhaps this order was inherent in the chaos itself. The next line is, Why then I'll fit you, Hieronymus mod again, which is from Thomas Kidd's Spanish tragedy, or Hieronymus Mata Game, a text that was written about the time of Shakespeare or right before so. Anyway, the line quoted is, Why then outfit you, Hieronymus Mata Game? In a single line, Eliot moves from the words of a father scheming for revenge to words that dismiss the father as a crazy person. Bel Imperia niece of the Spanish king, betrothed to the son of a Portuguese viceroy, Balthazar. It was an arranged marriage. She didn't love him. She loved Horatio, Hieronymus' son. But Balthazar and Lorenzo, Bell's brother, finds them alone together in the garden and hang Horatio for his audacity. Hieronymus swears that he will not bury his son's body until he finds his murderers. Bel Imperia tells him who exactly did it. And as things work out as they do in drama, Balthazar and Lorenzo, knowing Hieronimo was a poet, admired in his youth, 
ask him to write an entertainment for that night for the reception of the Portuguese emissaries. Hieronymo states, Why then I'll fit you to fit both to supply with, quote, what is necessary and also to punish. Hieronymo does go mad briefly after his wife Isabel commits suicide, rants incoherently, uses a dagger to dig up the ground in odd behavior, but then he recovers. When the play is performed, Hieronymo switches prop daggers for real ones. Balthazar and Lorenzo slay each other. Unfortunately, Bell's character, who was supposed to have committed suicide with a prop dagger, actually uses a real dagger and kills herself. Hieronymo tells everyone of his motive behind the murders. Then he bites his tongue off to prevent himself from talking under torture. He ends up killing the Duke, the father Lorenzo, and Bell Imperia, and then himself. So the line from Eliot is, Why then I'll fit you, Hieronymo's mod again. As I mentioned, Eliot moves in a single line from the words of a father scheming for revenge to the words that dismiss that father as a crazy person. But this mod again could entail what we looked at before with the divine madness of the prophet Theresius. In this he sees the three words the thunder said, Brihana Sakayaka Upanishad. The words are, as we've seen before, Data, giving, Damyatam, compassion, and Damyata, self-control. And Eliot's choice of the tarot card from Madame Sesostris was the man of the three staves, who he arbitrarily associates with the Fisher King. And here the three staves cast a shadow over the three words of what the thunder said. And then finally, the wasteland ends with the formal ending of the Upanishads, the Indian Upanishads. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. The Upanishads were written somewhere around the 8th century B.C., so they really were the first philosophical writing based on religious scripture, the Vedas. From untold antiquity, just music was heard by the great Indian seers at first. Then gradually, it was orally transmitted from father to son, and finally written down. The dates are anywhere from 2500 B.C. to 500 B.C., the Vedas were antecedent to creation. The magic eternal syllables precipitated creation itself. So, Eliot searched the Anglican Church service for an equivalent ending in English and came upon the peace that passeth understanding, an adequate rendering of Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. And with that, the wasteland ends. This concludes our series of five lectures. I hope it has been illuminating for everyone, both the newcomer and those who are well-versed with it. I want to thank you so much, and God bless.